0: Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about life and research at the Bartlett and how we are trying to build better. My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I am also the dean here at the Bartlett. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with other members of this community to explore a topic that captures a snapshot of what happens here from innovative techniques to interdisciplinary ideas to groundbreaking results. This episode is all about light. I want to know about the thought processes behind lighting spaces and the considerations involved, from wildlife to user safety to aesthetics. I'm also curious about the future of light and whether it lies in technology such as smart lighting. And to have this conversation, I'm joined today by Dr. Jemima Unwin Teji and Lorna Flores Villa. Jemima Unwin Teji is a lecturer in the Bartlett School of Environment, Energy, and Resources, and program leader for the MSC in Light and Lighting. Jemima's PhD research considered the effect of street lighting on pedestrians, and it's evolved to consider the impacts of light on public health, smart cities, and the design of inclusive environments. And my second guest is Lorna Flores Villa, an industrial designer and a PhD researcher at the UCL Institute for Environmental Design and Engineering. And she explores daylight and its impact on sleep quality. I want to begin with a question that for both of you will probably sound basic but for me and maybe some of our listeners is actually really important and the question is this, what is light? How should we understand light? Jemima.
1: So light is the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum from about 380 to 780 nanometers. A physicist would say you know the electromagnetic spectrum a lighting designer was saying that light is what makes things visible and we have various metrics which measure different aspects of light how much light lands on a surface how much light reflects off L- light is a, a life source you know without it we wouldn't be here
0: well I love a definition of light that involves both physics and and beauty so um, it's a great way to describe it and Lorna what about for you what what are some of the ways in which you understand light
2: well I think light is the medium that makes an environment as functional or that can contribute how the atmosphere feels in space but also will make uh, the user to have like uh, different ways of how they feel or how they are behaving. So basically lights just set the mood in, in the indoor environment but also in the outdoors environment. So people will behave differently depending on how light it is falling into the surface or into a a space
0: so already we're getting into something i think quite complex yeah (laughs) and you know lorna you're you're already alluding to the way in which light is not a neutral presence in our lives and so the the kind of light the manner in which it's present can affect our mood can affect our thoughts can affect our feelings and i'm just wondering you know we we tend to have light in and around our lives all the time and maybe aren't very conscious of it, and so I guess what I'm wondering is, when you study light, what are some of the ways to be aware of its presence, aware of how it acts on us?
1: And um, well, to be honest, with good lighting, you don't actually notice it. <laughs> we're not we're not overly aware of it because it's just so natural, isn't it? Our, you know, our our body clocks, our biology is tuned into the day-night cycle you can have a one cell organism in the sea that has a a day-night rhythm so I think it we're uh, it's unconsciously we're tuned into light now obviously when there's a problem (laughs) that's when we tend to notice it it's like you know when something's glary or you know we get you know too many down lights and you end up coming out of your office with a headache or something's flickering so I think the absence of you know obvious problems is actually a sign of good lighting I remember someone said to me, if you look in the corner of a, if you have a room that's painted white, and you look in the corner, the top corner, and you see those three surfaces, the ceiling and the two walls that join where they touch each other. They're actually all different colors. You know, so that's how, how a light reveals 3D form and is in, incredibly um, you know, subtle.
0: So I'm doing that right now as you speak. Yeah. I'm looking up <laughs> into the corner and seeing whether that works. And indeed, where, where those three surfaces come together, they are all different shades. And it's yeah. taking me back, actually, to when I used to study painting and having to think about light in those terms. And it sounds to me like, actually, when you study lighting design, there's a physics-scientific dimension to it. And, there's, and then there's a kind of aesthetic-artistic dimension to it. And I'm wondering, how do you bring those two things, those two worlds together? the Kind of the painterly and the, the scientific.
1: So, yeah, so that's obviously the wonderful thing about light is that it, it is, as you said, it's a creative the process of deciding on lighting is a creative process and as a designer you know we can influence absolutely you know we can we just almost you can decide what people see by by how you light and how you paint and what colors you choose so any artist or architect or designer will will tend to have a vision you know you have an idea of what you want something to look like and often it's called the design concept or you know the vision or your kind of you know how you imagine this space is going to be and then, and then once you have that, that's where the science comes in because, you know, your client might be saying, you know, like, oh, you know, I want to have, you know, black walls. <laughs> you, can, you can get a, like a black piece of paper and, a, and, a, and you know, and shine light on it and say, oh, look, look how low, the lo- that's low luminance. You know, it's dark. It, it doesn't look so dark. It makes the whole, might, could make the space look gloomy. So basically the, the science is a tool to justify and explain what you want to do. So I think it's, it's more like a, a communication. You communicate with the science And you justify your your art using the numbers.
0: Yeah, so I would imagine that that designing lighting for cinema uh, versus an operating theater, the specifications are quite different. Exactly. And of course, what's at stake is quite different. But you're talking a little bit about measuring light and quantifying lights and categorizing light. I'm wondering, Lorna, in your research, how do you understand the effect of light on people? So how do you sort of measure and interpret the way light affects individuals or groups of people?
2: Yeah, well, in my case, because I was interested in sleep quality, so what I did is just ask people about how they are feeling, so it's more about how people are reporting to feel after they have been exposed to the outdoors daylight. So it was kind of tricky, and this is one of the issues that I have encounter with my research because it's so complicated and people obviously they are when they are outdoors they either think they are outdoors but they are actually inside a building so they are not exposed to daylight per se but they are reporting as they are but uh, they are I guess in the last 10 years there have been developed some tools for recording how much light people is receiving. And there are some devices that can record how much light is coming through the eye. So it's more specific. But they are still in development. So they are still testing this so we can understand exactly how much the type of daylight that we are receiving is affecting in terms of health or in our brain and how this will impact overall in our well-being.
0: So thank you for mentioning daylight because, and I, and I feel a little bit bad doing this because I want to ask for your help in resolving an argument I keep having at home throughout the pandemic with my family, specifically my children, where I keep saying to them, you have to go outside every day. You've got to get some daylight. You can't just sit indoors. And they try to argue that it doesn't matter what kind of light you get just as so long as you get light. And so is it really true that daylight as a kind of light has value and is good for us in a way that artificial light just cannot replicate. Or are there ways through artificial lighting to bring all the benefits of daylight into enclosed spaces?
2: To be honest, I could be a bit biased <laughs> because I, I really my research is focused on daylight, so I'm trying to bring this up as being important, but it, it is like like daylight is cannot yet be mimicked by Indoor light and the reason for this is because daylight is always changing through the day and the wavelengths we receive and the amount of daylight that we receive uh, you cannot be adjusting that in the indoor environment yet and they have been trying to do that and they are trying to sell this idea of this smart lighting that can just change colors throughout the day but actually they are not changing how much light we are receiving so it's kind of two different things but For me, it's, and I think for Jemima as well, we think that being exposed to daylight at the right times is always important. And yeah, so basically, daylight brings some importance in our health, and we have to be exposed to it. It's it's not the same to be indoors with the electric light and be outdoors and receiving the uh, right light at the right time. And the right amount of light if that makes sense
1: yes i yeah com- completely agree with lorna so so we need to get outside particularly in the morning i would say for at least i don't know lorna times on this that all you're reading from your phd I'm, I'm i think it's at least 20 minutes half an hour Half an hour yeah it does a thing called in training our circadian clock and what that and that's a fancy way of saying our body becomes synchronized with the external pattern light dark pattern so we need to get enough bright light to, to which is what you can only ever get enough from daylight to be honest because if you want to do that with electric light it, it would be awful <laughs> you just imagine like sitting in a light box Imagine you can never really mimic daylight, you know, the quality the as Lorna said, the, you know, characteristics, the variation, illuminance is changing, the, the CCT, the colour temperature is changing. And yes, I always tell your children that they need to get outside for half an hour in, in the morning at least, and ideally more, <laughs> but, but that's the minimum.
0: That's really helpful. I will pass that along. So we're, we've talked a bit about the relationship between light and health. I'm also wondering about the relationship between light and safety because early on, Jemima, you mentioned you know people mostly become aware of lighting design when it's not working well, and I think one of the one of the ways in which people Often, experience bad lighting design is at night in poorly lit situations and spaces, like, you know, poorly lit street, a poorly lit parking area. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the importance of lighting to safety.
1: Yeah, so first few things to mention. I mean, one is that there's a difference between actual safety and perceived safety so uh, we need to differentiate those two topics so on on perceived safety so reassurance light definitely has an effect and from what my research showed was that people just don't like dark gaps like they think if you have a, a dark area for too long and I think it's you know people are just people will rate that street to be less safe at night compared to their their day rating and obviously, we have to do that because you get different areas which, you know, have, you have different perceptions. So you need to use the the day rating as a control of the night one. Yeah. And, and I found that, yeah, it's, it's basically dark areas for too long. Uh, people would uh, significantly rate the streets to be less safe. And I think it's probably and I'm speculating here, but I think it probably goes back to a primordial fear of what could pop out in the out of the dark and you know jump out at us there's a chat a researcher called war w-a-r-r who came up with the concept of lurk lines it's like you know we, we don't like what we can't see because we kind of then imagine what could be there so that's i think that's important to mention but i also think that and what i found was that lighting always uh, mattered with other things you know it was uh, aspects for example are other people about you know how busy a street is the reputation of the area perceived access to help so if it was it somewhere where you felt like someone would come to your aid if you got into trouble so so it's incredibly complex and and very rarely was was lighting a factor on its own like only lighting matters always lighting in combination with other factors
0: I guess that makes sense because you know what we wouldn't want are cities at night that are lit up like stadiums or something, you know, no. floodlit yeah. everywhere, lights everywhere, and so bright you can't you can't sleep and 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 it's just you know invasive and aggressive. And so I think this is where questions of design come in. You know, how do you strike the right balance for there to be enough light to be able to see, to go where you want to go, to feel safe or be safe? but at the same time to kind of respect the fact that it is night. And also there's an interesting, I think, intersection here with sustainability in the environment. So if we think about the effect of night lighting in cities on the migration of birds and wildlife and things like that, as well as the energy it takes to run lights, I'm wondering how do you balance all of these things? You know, safety, aesthetics, health, the environment, the energy,
1: yeah, I mean, I would I would say on on streets at night, it should be the the absolute minimum necessary, shouldn't it? And by following uh, the British you know, the standards and guidelines, we we pretty much get to minimum acceptability what i think is really important is also lighting vertical surfaces so there's a tendency in the standards to, to talk about lighting the horizontal surface of the pavement but i think a bit of light on buildings can help help us with orientation and wayfinding and uh, you know, we get to get a sense of you know how to navigate particularly unknown and unfamiliar environments In terms of wildlife, I mean, yeah, you you can create, for example, dark tunnels for bats so they can travel (laughs) around the city, you know, keep to their original routes. And obviously the the energy use, we don't want to waste energy. So I think I think you you hit the right balance by you have to just be very like any good designer, you have to be very responsive to the context, don't you? So you've got to think, okay, who's here, who needs to see? You get all sorts of interesting contradictions come up, like, you know, so say you've got a street where absolutely nobody goes out at night. Well, can you really justify lighting a street so that when you look out of the window, you know, there's a bit of light on you. Probably not, but then you have other areas where you have, you know, night shift workers who absolutely, you know, need to have their roots home well lit, you know. So, yes, I think the answer is just to be very context specific, like any good design.
0: So it almost suggests to me that the lighting infrastructure that we have in our communities and in our cities needs to be to a certain degree, adaptable because the needs, the activities, the patterns of communities aren't always stable over time. It seems like we need to have flexibility and adaptability designed into some of our infrastructure. Or am I being really naive about that?
2: I just remember when I used to be in Cricket food, They did some upgrade of lighting of LEDs, and it was extremely bright. And apparently, it was because there were a lot of crime issues around that area. So they were trying to just put a lot of light so in order just to diminish that. But then when they see like after a few months what was happening with that, actually it didn't make any impact in terms of crime. And actually people living there were complaining because it was too bright that it was just disturbing the neighborhood. So I don't think just putting a lot of light in some locations will resolve the issues that it has. So there there is the need to do proper, in my case, I think it's important to do the proper research to see what's the, the real issue in, in a specific location and see how that will impact overall and if it will work or not. So I think we have to consider these two issues that Jemima was saying, So just context, but not just putting a lot of light in one uh, location just to make, make it think that they are doing something, but they are actually not tackling the problem.
0: So would it be fair to say that in lighting design, there's almost an anthropological or sociological dimension, because you really need to understand people and communities, who they are, what they want, how they operate?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is. And we have to also understand that not everybody will see the the same lighting design as we intended. So a good lighting designer will try to merge into what actually the user needs instead of what the lighting designer might think is cool to have in that location or or place.
1: Yeah, Lorna raises a really interesting point that one, on this issue of making environments much brighter to try and solve a crime problem, what has happened in previous research is that reported crime increases post lighting, install- increased lighting installation because people can actually see what's going on and then report the crime. Then you have the other issue that say it does have a, a deterring effect, then there's a, a thing called displacement where, you know, the crime just moves to another area. So it's not actually gone. It's just moved to the next dark street. Yeah, it, lots of conflicts. I mean, on, on your um, point of Adaptability and flexibility. I think that's quite interesting because now with lighting controls, particularly with LEDs, it's incredibly easy to control light. So you can dim, change the color of the light very, very easily in at a touch of a button, and and it's, and it's cheap to do, relatively cheap to do. Although obviously manufacturers will try and sell that, <laughs> sell that capacity as a nice profit. So I think that can be designed into the system. And yeah, that's that's a good thing. So I think, despite the fact that it's a kind of hard infrastructure, once the once that adaptability and lighting controls are there, then then that flexibility is there too. I think there's another interesting point about Internet of Things, you know, everything being connectable in future. So I think if if, for example, the hard landscaping, for example, you know, seats and curbs, if we started to think about perhaps integrating light there then we could link that perhaps to the street lighting or even building facades so that the the street light becomes a whole you know planned lighting scheme but then we have practical issues with ownership you know for example you know so if the council comes and lights the front of my house I'll be like pretty annoyed so so that then you get the, you know, these issues you know come in which are never easy to solve.
0: So we've talked about healthy light, safe light, indoor light, outdoor light, public light. I'd love for us to talk a bit about the future of light, but maybe a way of getting into that is is to touch first on the future of work. So what I mean is that right now, lots and lots of people are working from home and their home setups have not been designed by employers. They've not been designed as workspaces and they're cobbling together furniture and you know, internet technology, computers, but also light setups in order to function. And I'm wondering what advice you would have for people as they set up their home working environments. What kinds of things should they take in, on board when it comes to lighting those spaces? And I ask that right now with a giant sort of selfie, one of those weird round selfie lights shining in my face, a uh, a desk lamp kind of on the other side, the light on above me and my computer screen glaring in my eyes. And within a n- couple of hours, I'm gonna have a horrible headache and want to go outside and get some fresh air and some natural light. But I think many of us really have unhealthy, uh, impractical setups. So what? how can you help us do this better? Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think it's a tricky one. I think people tend to always find a location next to a window. And I have seen it when I have like a Zoom calls and all that all of the people have their offices next to a window which i think is a great start but basically to have a desk lamp i think that would be ideal because we are always working on a device that it has self light so i don't think we need more light than that we are receiving from the from the screens and if we're working next to a window, I think that would be enough if you just work like a normal time from eight to five, I, I guess.
1: Yes, I completely agree with Lorna on that. The, the daylight is essential. You know, get near a window if possible. But also, view out. You know, we have, if we can look out and have a good... Obviously, you can't control your view. But even, I think, just, you know, if you can see the sky, that's a wonderful thing from where you're sitting. Um, so I say that that primarily. And then, then you've got to think, OK, most of us are now working at laptops and computers, which is a self-luminous source. So we can increase the screen brightness and we can see what our actual task is, is lit just by the nature of what we're doing. So I think, well, what is it we want the light for now? If, I know those circular lights. I know my husband has one because he basically wants to look good on the camera. <laughs> so if your if your aim is to look good on camera, then yeah, you you know, you do exactly that. You know, you have you have that you know if, something framing it's, so it's nice and uni- uniform across your face as, or as far as possible. Yeah, and if you have you know light if light from one side, then then it will give you more modelling. So for example, my face now you can you can see you know because I've got like light source coming from there. So my face is probably looks uh, more 3d than yours Christoph, because you've got you've got you know, one of those round lights would you mm. say kind of deciding on how how we want to look in front of the camera and then and i and i also think um yeah as long as like a task i find that having a task light next to me does help me focus so so sometimes you, know, you put that on everything else off it really helps me focus on what i'm doing so it's more psychological like it helps me concentrate it's not that I actually need it to see, particularly when I'm on my laptop. Yeah, and, it, and it's very much a, an individual preference and choice and and trying it out. I do think, you know, you need a lot of space as well. <laughs> I, I, in, in my corner, I'm a little bit squashed in and I'm always like, oh, I want, it, I want like another meter to spread out.
0: Um, it's making me think a little bit about how some of my smart devices nudge me around lighting. So yeah. there's one thing where your home learns your preferences and, and, and what you like and anticipates that and creates it for you. But Then there's a question of, is that good for you? So my phone, for instance, keeps telling me I need to switch to night mode every night. It keeps telling me to put it down, stop looking at it. It wants to switch. You know, it it keeps giving me clues that maybe my, my preferences around light are, are not necessarily super healthy. And so I'm almost wondering of a version, and, and probably it doesn't appeal to many people, but I am wondering a version of, you know, could you have smart AI driven lighting systems that can actually improve our health, improve our sleep and, and, and improve the way that we live and work and maybe make us more active and get us out of the house more because of how they, they, they nudge us positively to do the healthy behavior.
1: That's ambitious. That would be very, very ambitious. I'm just thinking, like now in my home, and the the lights are off because uh, there's enough daylight, and that's the way it should be. Um, and if the lights start nudging me to do things, it would probably be a bit annoying. <laughs> sure I want my lights talking to me. It's like those people who have those Alexas. <laughs> so yeah, I think yeah. I mean, AI is you know an absolutely wonderfully Powerful tool, but I personally would not want my phone telling me what to do
0: <laughs> no i think I think most most of our audience are with you on that one. <laughs> we don't want to be the phone to be our boss and Lorna, what are your thoughts on the on the future of light, some of the factors that will drive innovation but also the direction?
2: yeah, I mean, I think two years ago, because we didn't have the pandemic and all that, I was thinking that we were going into the right path because there were some like the world standard that they were focusing more on the user rather to saving energy and also because all of the recommendations that were done they were based on research so it was something that somehow it has been tested and then they think it's the best for the user to be spending time indoors but now because we all of us are having different situations in our homes or if we are going working in the in the office. I'm quite sure that in terms of light, people would always prefer to have control of their environment. So yeah, so either if you are in like in an office environment, if you have a desk lamp, again you will you will know when you turn it on and off. And I think that's the sense that we as humans like to have like the control of things so yeah it's like a, a sensible thing to just keep doing and maybe overall trying to let's say teach people how to what what's the best best way of just controlling the light I
1: guess yeah and often that might be switch off the electric light, switching yeah because
2: <laughs> sometimes they forget or they like one of the things that we also have found is for the blind, if it's coming a lot of sunlight through it, so people tend to just roll back down the 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 curtains and then they forget to just put it up and then they just leave it like that. And then the next day they just keep the electric light on instead of just using the light that is coming through the window. So that's the thing that needs to be taught to, to people just to get into the attitude of look this is good for you you have to do this and that or avoid just look at your phone at uh,
1: midnight or something <laughs> yeah so we had so we had a an msc student who looked at groups so so there was so people were putting small groups in a room And the lighting was dimmed down really slow, really gradually. And then we were looking to see at what point did somebody intervene and switch the light on? Because you can do things subliminally so you can reduce the electric lighting in a way that people don't notice and save energy that way. But then obviously there's a threshold below which it becomes too low. So anyway, so in this experiment, there was something like, it was a small, you know, so like five, six groups, and every single group had a completely different response (laughs) to, to this same experimental condition of the light just gradually being dimmed down. They were given a reading task or something, so they needed the light. I think that, that's really interesting. I think we've got to understand more, actually, about human behavior and about how humans interact with each other before we do anything too ambitious and complex.
0: And I suppose there's also the other, the other part of that situation is, you know, am I allowed to touch the light people? Yes. So what, you know, am I in a space where I'm free and empowered to intervene in things like light or heat or moving furniture and, you know, all that kind of stuff?
1: And that's all linked to expectations, isn't it? So if, if you go into a, so for example, when I now go into Central House office, my office, my old office, I would never expect to be able to change the corridor lighting. It's like that's not my zone or my ownership. Whereas at home, I would want to, touch everything and within an individual office if I can't control it it's, it's annoying and then if, if it changes without me touching it, it becomes annoying. It's like you know you wouldn't want you wouldn't go into a hospital and expect to be able to change the lighting except perhaps if you're in a, in a one bed room but you do, you know not in your operating theater which I mean that's, that's obvious so I think yeah I've got to understand people more I
0: think. understanding people more that is a fantastic note on which to uh, begin to draw our conclusion to an end We've been talking about the future of light, and that theme connects very much to a question that we'd like to ask each of our guests at the end of the episode. And the question is this, looking to the future, what is one thing that you think needs to change so we can build better? What do you think, Lorna?
2: I think, as Jemima said, just to understand what we actually need and what we actually will make us feel good like in terms of health and well-being and be happy in the place
1: that we are inside yeah yeah and also I think uh, I think a lot of it I mean, I found this in healthcare environment working with end users in healthcare environments is that people just like to be listened to so if you go to an environment say okay how can we improve the lighting people have so many good ideas about what they need where and what are the problems and I think just listening is, is really good listening to end users who use the space
0: So thank you so much to both of my guests. We've heard a lot about lighting and I don't think I'll ever look at the corner of a ceiling in quite the same way again. (laughs) You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This episode was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner produced by UCL with support from the Bartlett communications team and edited by Karis Bradley. It featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. We were joined today by Dr. Jemima Unwin Teji and Lorna Flores Villa. And if you would like to hear more of these podcasts, please subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash bartlett slash building better and of course you can follow us at the bartlett ucl this podcast is brought to you by the bartlett ucl's global faculty of the built environment and ucl minds bringing together ucl knowledge insights and expertise through events digital content and activities that are open to everyone we'll see you next month